Most startups are strapped for time. You, you're executing at the highest level you've ever executed while also setting the strategy with a limited amount of resources and team members and that sort of thing. And so really what we come in and do is like find the data to support, like we will find out what exactly is the problem and then be there all the way through the creation of whether it's playbooks or processes or trainings or onboardings to fix it. And then also, you know, help enable managers and things like that to actually coach their team to change their behaviors and hold them accountable. This is Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman. And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. What's up, Reveal people? Coming to you with another hot episode, this time, Karina taking on Kelly Schur solo. Karina, tell us about the episode. Kelly Schur is such an energy-filled individual and such a well-rounded sales professional. I mean, she really has done it all. She's worked for Intercom, Google, Box, and has experience in all sorts of sales positions. So she truly knows what she's talking about when it comes to what does it mean to be a seller in a startup environment? Kelly is a startup sales expert and the co-founder of Candor Group, a business that offers full-service sales strategy and enablement consulting. And in this episode, she's going to share with us how to maximize startup growth by implementing a repeatable sales motion for increased efficiency, shape an all-inclusive workplace by delving into company leadership, diversity research, and more. I also learned a lot about pickleball, so you're going to get a little bit of a taste of that as well. But she is just a great individual and somebody that really gets to the heart of what it means to transform a company and take it to the next level. So, Danny, I cannot wait for you and listeners to hear this one. DJ, spin that. Kelly, you've experienced the flywheel of sales professionals. I think you are perfectly suited to be on this podcast to educate our listeners. But first, welcome to Reveal. Thank you, Corinna. Man, you should be my number one hype woman. I just like, if I could wake up to that every morning, every day would be amazing. I got you. I'm so excited to be here. I love Gong. I love the podcast. So honored to be here. Awesome. Well, let's just like take a step back. Like what even got you interested in sales in the first place? Yeah, definitely. So I was fresh out of Peace Corps. And I had approximately $5 in my bank account and I needed to pay off my student loans. And I think I Googled how to make the most money without going back to get a master's. Hell yeah. And tech sales came up. And at the time I was like, oh, dude, that would be so awesome to work at Google. Like I could have my shaved head. I could have my tattoos out. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so I ended up, I had always been a big product nerd, but ended up realizing that, you know, as a queer person, I had been hustling my whole life and there was this career in tech sales, but I never thought that like me, a young queer person could understand, you know, how to do technical software sales. And I realized, you know, that, hey, like I'm actually, I've been selling my whole life. I've been hustling my whole life. I love technical product and this is a place for me. And so I got in and the rest has kind of been history. I'm really glad you brought that off. You've, all, you've always had to be trying to find your ways to get people to, whether it's accept you or bright and bring you into the conversation. And you pushed, mm-hmm. you've always had to push yourself and open those doors. Did you find that any of those environments 
did they feel more like just naturally inclusive? Did you feel more drawn to those environments? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the luckiest things for me is that my first career in tech was at Google. And it was a company that at the time, you know, this was 2011, you know, was taking care of its people in this really great way and really setting the stage for like, this is how you take care of your people. And so, you know, no tech company is perfect, but I feel grateful that that was kind of the standard that was set for me early on in my career of how you take care of your people. And yeah, have been really fortunate to work at places that did value, you know, me as a queer person and had actively hired a lot of other queer people as well to make me feel safe and and that I did fit in. Obviously not at every company, but I'm grateful for the ones that that really went out of their way and had other people that look and felt like me in their sales. Yes, and it's so important. And, and I'm sure that you like if you were to advise somebody that's queer today and they're approaching, you know, companies that they maybe don't want to approach just because of the market and the way it is. Are there any like tips you would give to them about how to like just even with maybe in their owner confidence or things to say or things to look out for, maybe like even red flags of like, hey, they may say they're inclusive, but maybe if they ask you this question in a certain way, you know, don't feel like you have to respond, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I would say just to keep it real, real, because I know that you do on your podcast, Corinna, is that, you know, it is hard to know until you're inside it, right? And that being said, I think there are things that you can look for is like, are there other people, you know, not only that they're hiring at entry level roles, but in leadership, right? Does a C-suite have any like queer people or diverse folks, quote unquote, diverse folks? A lot of companies, at least nowadays, will say that that's important to them. But if it's not in leadership or, you know, that and it's just like on your website, that that isn't going to work for me. (laughs) So that's one of the big ones I look for. And then the other thing, too, is just you know, talking to people who are actually there and working there already, I think is huge. Uh, It's really important to find other people and say like, hey, how is it when you're actually in there? Is it supportive? Are there other people? What resources do they have in place to support me once I'm hired? Yes, I love that. I think that's a, those are really great tips and I completely agree with you. So you have gone through the gauntlet of sales. I'm sure you've been beaten up. You've had some amazing wins. These are great logos. What made you want to go off on your own and create Canda? And tell us a little bit more about Canda. Yeah. So I'll back up and explain what Canda is, and then I'll tell you what made me decide. So Canda is a sales strategy and enablement consulting group that I started with my good friend and colleague of many years, Anna Cockle, who's this amazing sales enablement leader in her own right. And yeah, so what we really do is we you know, work with startups to kind of optimize their sales teams, help them increase revenue and really just set them up for success as they scale. And this just came as kind of a natural output of the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so of work that I've done. I love working with startups. There weren't a ton of companies out there that were addressing this kind of hole in the market that we saw where, you know, you saw you have a lot of sales trainers and consulting groups that are focused on big enterprise companies. But those playbooks and those, you know, recommendations don't always work for startups. The only thing constant in startups is change. They're changing all the time. So how do you set best practices and processes and playbooks in a world that's constantly changing? So I would say that working for myself at Canada Group, one, for me, I love working for myself. 
you know, it is a, a great quality of life for me and allows me and I feel very lucky to be able to be paid to do the work that I love. And so that's really the benefit for me. And also I get to work with Anna, who's amazing. I hope you meet her one day. I would love to. I'd love to have her on. Yes, you should have her on. She would yes. love it. Good, good, good. So I think you you pointed out something that we haven't actually really dug into here on Reveal, which is that that is the startup playbook, actually, is to go like quickly to enterprise. And it's... <laughs> It's not the it's not the route to fruition that they think it's going to be. And I think we especially experienced that in 2021, you know, later in the year, really felt it last year, still feeling it this year. Is there anything you can share with us about what has been such the shift, these startups from like maybe the boom of digital sales that we had earlier in the pandemic to now? Has there been a mindset shift with them that you don't even have to point it out to them anymore? Are they more aware of like, hey, we are fundamentally lacking some foundations. We totally went about this go-to-market strategy wrong. Or are you still having to point out things to them that are, let's say, red flags about how they're going to market? Yeah. I mean, we're lucky in that we work with some really awesome clients and sales leaders. And, you know, it's hard. Like sales is just hard. Sales at startups is hard. There, You need to be executing at the highest level possible while also figuring out your strategy. And so I think most of the people have a general idea of what's going on. Yeah, I think most leaders, you know, we're very lucky to work with just this like awesome sales leaders. And most of them have a general idea of what's going on, but a lot of them don't have enough time or resources to do the deep digging to actually go find the data to support it and then actually create and implement the things to make the change. Most startups are strapped for time. You're executing at the highest level you've ever executed while also setting the strategy with a limited amount of resources and team members and that sort of thing. And so really what we come in and do is like, you know, find the data to support like a lot of times we'll get sales leaders that are like hey i think it's this that's wrong but like yeah go ahead and call me the sherlock holmes of startups because like i'll go in there with my little magnifying glass and like we will find out what exactly is the problem and then be there all the way through the creation of whether it's playbooks or processes or trainings or onboardings to fix it and then also you know help enable managers and things like that to actually coach their team to change their behaviors and hold them accountable That's amazing. Do you find that there are some like common themes that the startups have that are just glaringly obvious once you get that Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass? You're like, yep, knew that would be there. In terms of things that they struggle with or in things that are. Yeah. I would say that it's usually a few things. So people will generally come to us if, let's say, you know, they raised around and they need it. And they now they have investors coming to them and looking to them to 5x revenue. How how are you overnight supposed to figure out your strategy to 5x revenue while still doing everything that you were supposed to do before? Right. So people will come to us with that. People will come to us, you know, just like we are looking to scale and we don't have a repeatable sales motion right now. And that is like something else that we'll really look out for with them. It's just like, hey, if every deal that you're working looks different, you haven't figured it out yet. And I will tell you that a sales team 
that is humming and a sales team that we're trying to build for you is a sales team where every deal looks the same, right? You don't want a lot of like variability between your reps. You don't want a lot of variability between the deal sizes. Okay, you have a rep, a rep last year who closed a deal with Amazon for $10 million, let's say, and they haven't been able to close that again. It's not working, right? And so, yeah, so we're working with people that just like figure out what is your secret sauce and how do we standardize that? while also keeping space for that like experimentation that you still need to start up, right? I think you hit the nail on the head with that. And I've been struggling to find my own words to describe like what I've been seeing like over the past, you know, several years of my career too, where it's like, you're right, that the deals all look different. The sales processes are all different. They're usually wanting to replicate one leader and you're saying that that's not really the way to go. It really should be a standard, like every deal should look the same. Every process should look the same. Yeah, at a certain point, right? And so like, I think I think that's dream state, right? Because we know that if you're going into a scale or anything like that, if you're going into scale, yes, you need that certain level of efficiency, right? Deal sizes should be, you know, roughly the same for that for the same team conversion rates should be the same that sort of thing and so i think it's just being intentional about what percentage of your or where in your sales cycle is standardized and where there's still room for experimentation right so if you think about it is like hey do you have somebody on your team who's always closing ctos but somebody else on your team is always closing like ic engineers like why is that happening and it's okay if it is happening but like understanding why that is happening or do you have an SDR who's like amazing at converting free users but cannot convert you know a demo lead why is that happening so I think the biggest thing is is like taking a look under the hood and understanding if you're a startup if I saw a startup who would like we have it 100% figured out and this is our playbook and it's never changing that would actually be more alarming to me than the other way around because, of course, once again, startups are constantly changing. Their, your sales motion, your go-to-market motion should be changing. But what I look to see is like the intentionality about, hey, we know that this 25% of the sales cycle is dialed in and figured out. And we've standardized that, written a playbook and trained the team on it. And this other 75%, we're still figuring. And that's where the rep can go and play and experiment. What would you say is the secret sauce of your ability to train the reps? Because, I, you know, there's loads of different coaches and programs and methodologies out there. But when I'm hearing you speak, like you really seem to be dialed into not just the data, but like the people and the individuals and their talents and their skill sets themselves. So how would you describe like how you approach like ensuring that every single person in that room has adopted this new way of doing business? Oh, well, I, won't, I feel very passionately about how people learn and thinking about how people learn. And that's just been a passion of mine my whole life. My mother's a teacher. I probably like learned it from her. Yay, there we go. And so when we're delivering trainings, we're thinking about things like, you know, what is the optimal way for people to ingest new content should that be async or should that be live, right? So we're thinking of just about like, hey, okay, this material can be async. This material can be live. This material should be like in a group setting, things like that. So we think a lot about 
how to create this like dynamic, engaging material that people can learn. And then the other piece of it is that accountability piece. And a lot of times this actually falls with the managers. So anytime, you know, you're trying to enable a team, it's really easy to blame it on the reps, right? But I'm actually a huge advocate is of that being the responsibility of the managers. So how are you keeping your team accountable? How are you coaching your B player, B players to an A player? You know, how are you when you are setting these metrics that you need them to hit? Like, what do those follow up conversations look like? And so I think it's just taking this holistic approach that is like, how do people learn? How do people create behavior change in their day to day life? And then how are we holding them accountable uh, when things and how are we having those tough discussions when people aren't able to change their behavior? And not everybody will. You know what I mean? Yeah, there will there will be resistance. And I feel like I'm glad that you hit on the manager aspect of it, because I feel like not only will you probably encounter resistance from management of the sales leaders, but you also might even encounter resistance from the CEO and founders themselves. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anytime you're trying to change anything, it's uncomfortable. And I remember one of the, you know, like best mentors I had when I was at um, SDR manager at Intercom, he came into me and he was like, hey, Kelly, I'm going to start digging into everything in the SCR team to figure out like what's working and what's not working. And it's going to be really uncomfortable for you. And I know that. And it's okay. And I want you to talk to me about it if it's uncomfortable. But this is going to make you better. And you didn't do anything wrong. You were doing the best that you could when you did these things. And also it's time for us to uplevel it. You know, and just like that, I have been very fortunate in my life to have some great managers. And just that human aspect of like, hey, I'm a first-time manager as like a young, queer, first-time manager at one of the hottest startups in the Valley. And you're going to be coming in here and poking around and tell me everything I did wrong on my team. That's uncomfortable, you know? And, but ultimately being able to like sit there and learn from it made me a better manager, made my team better, made the company better, right? And just that like human aspect of it allowed me to not get defensive and to sit there and learn from it. Well, I love the way that's another thing, too, is that this feedback loop, right? Like, I think there's, in my experience, especially in sales, there's the element of kind of leading with fear and this yep. element of competition and who's going to top the leaderboard. And yes. I love that the feedback that, that was given to you was, hey, I'm going to come to you with some hard stuff. It's going to be uncomfortable. He was real with you. He was honest with you. And that probably lowers your guard down to even accept the information in the first place. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so I always like keep that with me when I go consult, you know, when I'm going into these companies, it's like, there's a stranger here asking me about, you know, everything that I've done for the last year. And like, that can feel hard, you know what I mean? And so keeping like humanity front and center, keeping you know, being humble and that people are doing the best that they can most of the time. And also startups are hard. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, that, I think that takes a pretty high, um, you know, emotional intelligence on your end and, and probably your partner's end as well. Is that something that you're also passionate about? And is there something that you are consciously aware of that, like, whether it's in your professional or personal life that has made you like presently aware to be, to look at another person as a human? And not not just as a 
me versus them, right? There's like, there's me, there's you, and then there's the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that hopefully is something that I do try to lead with in every aspect of my life. And I think it is really easy in sales, especially, right? Where it's like, I have my number and you have your number and we're competing. It's me versus you. But actually, if we can learn from each other and help each other, then that just like helps us be better. Once again, helps the team be better, helps the company be better. But I do think that I've also been lucky to have had managers that really like exemplified that and led with that. And I think one of the things that I do worry about a little bit in tech right now is I remember, so a little story for you is I was at Box and we were actually about to IPO and I was a OBR at the time. And this manager from Box was like, hey, I'm going to this little company. It's called Intercom. You know, do you want to come over and be the first sales hire for me? And I was like, you're crazy. Box is about to IPO. Like, what are you talking about? But this was a manager who I just really loved his management style. He was somebody who he had always taken a chance on me. Like he was like, you know, when a lot of people told me like your selling style, like the selling style that is me, that's this like high emotional intelligence that is like a queer person that is, you know, a passionate, open person. They were like, there's no place for that in business. He was like, you take that and you run with it. Like you're going to do great, you know? And so he had always taken a chance on me and so when he asked me to be the first sales rep at Intercom, nobody had heard of Intercom. It was like 30 employees. It was tiny. And I left. People were like, you're crazy. But the reason that I left was I was like, hey, this is a manager who I want to learn how to manage like him. So he took a chance on me. I'm going to go take a chance on him. And I learned how to lead from him. And one of the things that I worry about a little bit right now was so much you know, turnover in tech is just all these first-time managers or people who are transitioning into management for the first time who don't have, haven't had a company invest in them in the way that like Box invested in me or a leader or mentor who invested in me in the same way. And so they're not learning these like human emo high emotional intelligence pieces of management because there's been a little bit of this like disposable aspect to people in tech, unfortunately. So I do worry about that just as somebody who like deeply loves tech. It's like, what is the future for our leaders if we're not investing in them and also showing them things besides like running reports and things like that? It is management. It is communication. It is like caring for your team as well as executing, hitting your number. Kelly is right. If you want your sales team to be engaged, you need to engage them in sales training. The optimal way for them to ingest content. An article on 360 Learning states that businesses who provide engaging sales training leads to, you ready for this? 49% lower annual turnover and 12% higher win rates. Who doesn't want both of those? So what are some of the ways to incorporate dynamic engagement within your sales training? Some ways include facilitating peer-to-peer -peer learning, role play, Q&A sessions, leveraging micro-learning tools such as call scripts, customer analytics, research comes from recent industry reports, and there's so much more. So this is your sign to finally start being more engaging in your sales training and say sayonara to that self-evident, fluffy, predictable stuff. Just make it fun. All right, let's go back and hear more from Kelly. I worry about that too, because I think the norm of sales management is you get to people management after your team and you have hit a certain quota. 
Right. That has nothing to do with how you nothing manage people. Yeah. Nothing. And yeah. And sales is so unique in that, you know, in every other role, I feel like your the skills that you have in your IC role directly translate to your managerial role. But in sales, the things that made you a top closer aren't going to make you the best manager. And yeah. so where are they going to learn this new, you know, set of skills as a manager? Is that a topic of conversation that you would say you bring up with your founders and CEOs at Canda Group? Yeah, definitely. We talk about manager enablement all the time. And, you know, I think it is something that startups specifically are still figuring out. And one of the things we are also slight plug for the Canda Group is we are also launching. It, it is something that Anna and I have just always been passionate about. And so we're going to launch a manager's mastermind group this summer to help, you know, just train people who aren't getting that. Like a lot of people aren't getting it at companies in the way that they used to five, 10 years ago. And so that's a passion project that I'm excited to roll out with and hope that we can pay it forward in the same way that people, you know, invested in us. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So we are going to be launching it July 10th. And details I'll share more with you, but it's just going to be primarily focused for folks who, you know, want to invest in the skills to become a manager. That's, you know, hey, the emotional intelligence side, the communication side, the, per, you know, how do you get those B players to A players? Not so much around, you know, how do you run the reports and dashboards and things like that. But I like to think about more of the like soft skills side of management and how you motivate your team, which is particularly important in sales is like you need the best sales managers are the ones that do have that emotional connection with their team that that their team does want to win for if your team doesn't want to win for you you're not gonna hit your number like i'll tell you that right now like i'll give you all my hot takes that people can write down like that's one of them if your team doesn't want to win for you you're not hitting your number a hundred percent yeah and i think too there's there's uh there's people that even like just don't even check in don't even check in how's your life going How's your life? That's what I'm saying. I was like, if you don't know what's going on with your team, like if somebody is going through a tough time, like I need to know that when I'm forecasting because like, hey, they're, you know, they just lost somebody in their family. Like, are they okay? I'm not sure they're going to be able to hit their number. How can we get support around them right now so that, you know, that the team can keep going, they can keep going, that sort of thing. But especially in sales, like we're emotional people. You have to be passionate. So how are you getting that emotional connection with your manager and that safety net? It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to take care of yourself. It's okay to need like mental health days. Like, oh, how are we talking about sales and not talking about mental health? Like, you know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah. It's how can you even begin to feel comfortable to share that if it's in this environment that's not psychologically safe to share failures and and, and uncomfortable moments that happen in life, right? Right, exactly. And it's like, you have to know your team's why. And there's no wrong why. Like, why are you here? Are you here to make money? Great, let's do that. Are you here to get promoted? Let's do that. Are you here to like take care of your family financially? Let's do that. Are you here to pay off your student loans? Let's get you paid, you know? I love that. I love the directness of it. And I love that the directness of it is not, because so many people I think take, direct as a negative quality i think it's a beautiful quality amazing yeah i mean i love it people people will probably say i'm too direct but i think i appreciate directness yeah. me too yeah but then that's what can get me uh, or the client right to where they need to go and y you're fully in 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 the loop with them and you can then now train them 
exactly the way they need to be trained and spot the red flags along the way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The nail on the head. So what would you say are like some of the top red flags that sales leaders should be having on their radars today? It's a very, very, very volatile market, right? And things are changing every single day. (laughs) There's a lot of lack of trust. Yeah. What's your hot takes right now? So I would say red flags that I look for are, are you seeing dips in leads, pipeline, revenue month over month? I think especially in today's economy and climate, people are quick to be like, oh, yeah, our pipeline's been down month over month for six months, but it's the economy. And it might be, it is harder to sell right now, but you better be sure that it's that and not something else, right? So I'm like, hey, take this time to really understand, is it the economy? And if it is the economy, okay, let's deal with that. But is it actually that like, hey, on a team of seven, we actually have two high performers and everybody else is is historically not been like a high performer, has low conversion rates or, you know, can't close a deal, yada, yada, whatever. So for me, if you're seeing dips in any of those, you know, like leads, pipeline, revenue, things like that, month over month, red flag, and don't just jump to blame it on the economy, but start digging in and and figuring that out. And hey, if you don't have enough time to do that, most people don't. That's where you hire Canda Group. We come in, we do it for you. Love it. Yeah. So I would say that's a big one. And then another red flag that we kind of touched on earlier is just, yeah, is there high variability between reps, high variability in your deals. Like you're getting Walmart in the next, you know, one month, the next month you're closing just $50 deals, right? Huge, like million dollar contract to $50 contracts. Like what is going on there? That would be a red flag. Okay. One of my reps converts a hundred percent or closes a hundred percent. Everybody else is at 10%. Why is that happening? So I think, you know, salespeople were great about leading with curiosity and sometimes you do just have to put your ego aside and be like, ooh, like, don't love that that's happening, but let me be curious. Let me be inquisitive and understand, like, what what is the reason under that, right? So, and I would love for your take on, I- I'm going to try and not lead you here, but what's your take on Spiff solving the problem? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm actually curious on which way you think I would go. Yeah, which way which way you think I'm going to go? You want me to go first? Yeah, 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 you go first. Well, I think we think similar. I do not think Spiff solved the problem because I think that that's just obviously they want to make money. They're trying to make money. That's not addressing why they're not making money, right? Like you're not these aren't just lazy reps. These aren't just people that are not wanting to do good at their job. Yeah. So what's your so what's your take? Okay, so I agree with you. And also, I am a fan of spiffs for like very short term things, right? So like, hey, if you're running a campaign, your your marketing team just went to an event, whoever can convert the most from this specific event, you know, something like that. So I think spiffs are effective in like a sprint, like it's just solving short term sprint problems, but not not as like a long term. Yeah, exactly. Not as like a long term solution. And so I think when used in a intentional, specific way, love them because salespeople, we do like to make money. I love Spiff. I'm like, sweet, let's go. But it's probably not going to solve any kind of like systemic problems. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Okay. I love that. I'm like highlighting, underlining that. Yeah. It does. 
spiffs do not solve systemic problems. No. Yeah. But I think they're good for morale. Like, you know, if morale's low, like give them a little game. Like I remember, you know, when I was at OBR at Box and you're cranking out, you know, 100 dials a day is like, that's hard. It's hard to get excited about, you know, a lot of outbound teams out here. Like it's hard to get excited about. And spiffs can make it fun, but that's for your team. That's like for your team to have a little extra pocket change for your team to get excited. That's not to solve like systemic pipeline issues at the company. Right, right, right. And do you think that we're going to evolve? Because what's what's always fa- I've always found fascinating is that like for, you know, the past 15 years or whatever that have been in the tech space, we have this set number of metrics of this many dials, this many emails, this many whatever. But we have so much more at our disposal of data and insight and like how people want to be to communicate. Yet many startups are still doing X number of dials, X number of outbound emails. What's your what's what's your hot take on the, these metrics? Wow, you're really trying to, you're trying to have me have no friends by the end of this podcast. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm gonna get just like unfollowed. <laughs> okay. Hot takes for activity. I think that they're, once again, not to sound like a broken record, but I think there's like a time and place for them. And how it was explained to me, because when I was, you know, an SDR, I was like, wait, I thought I was like so good and I was like, I'm amazing. And, you know, and and I was doing things like I was having higher conversion rates on, like, I was like, I don't need to make 100 calls to get 10 ops, for example, right? And so I would do less. And my manager had to sit me down. And once again, I've had a lot of very patient managers over the years. And my manager, my manager had to sit me down and was like, hey, Kelly, like those activity metrics actually aren't for you. It's for management, right? Like we need to know that there's a certain amount of effort going that the team is doing. And so all of this to say, I think that entry level people need activity metrics to learn the like motion of sales, right? You're building, it's like, it's like going to the gym, right? So you need to just like learn. And it also really helps you get over your fear, right? A lot of entry-level sales, people get stuck in their head. They're really scared to pick up the phone. And so just like repetitive motion helps you build that muscle memory. Then as you go up, I think that your value is not in being that like muscle of the sales team. It's in being more strategic. And so management should allow people to make decisions for themselves to a certain extent. So I'm telling you, you need to be at this number. And if you can figure out how to get there in less activity, that's great. But in our one-on-ones, and this is where I think like performance management is really key. In our one-on-ones, if you're coming to me and you're down on your number, you know, for the last two months, like let's go look at your activity. And if it is half the activity of the people, the rest of the people on the team, then like, hey, that could be an issue about what's going on. And like, maybe let's bump up your activity. But I think a lot of managers over index towards activity as a way. And it's like, it's like a little bit micromanaging for me, honestly. But anyway, so (laughs) where I'm like, hey, this is a strategic BDR or strategic AE, like, Part of their value is being able to understand them figuring out for themselves, like what is their playbook, what's working for them in their patch, that sort of thing. But for entry level people, 100%, I think like you need at least six months of just like building those muscle muscles. Rejection. But, yeah. Re- <laughs> rejection at bats, yeah. you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. I respect that. Yeah. And I what think do you that. Think? 
Well, I think that it's a little archaic, right? And I think I, I think at a lot of companies, it's not rooted in actual data. It's just something that somebody told them that worked. And then they just replicate and replicate and replicate it. And as a marketing professional, I'm always telling people like, hey, here's my playbook. That doesn't mean it's going to be like a showrunner for you. Like, you've got to make it your own. You've got to revisit it. You've got to, you, you know, you mean I do too. So I just hate that. I see so much in sale or that's strong word hate. I just <laughs> like, I'm not scared. <laughs> All right, good. I just, I dislike that I see so much in sales that they're like, well, they're not doing enough dollars. They're not, or di- dials. They're not, they're, they're not doing enough emails. And it's like, well, you know, that's a crowded space already. And people are already wired as humans to know when is, when a bot's calling, when it's, when it's a cold sale, like, when you talk to me about the psychology of how to dissect, like what, number one, like what's the landscape? And then the psychology of how to fix it, like that to me is what is lacking in the industry more than anything. 100%. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you on that. And I think that a lot of managers and a lot of sales leadership aren't having that nuanced conversation of, you know, hey, maybe this doesn't actually work. Especially, you know, we work with a lot of, you know, DevOps companies that have technical buyers. And it's like, <laughs> they're not really like, like, good luck figuring that out with like all your cold calls. Like, you know, and so I feel for my fellow salespeople of like, it's just hard. It is hard to sell and it's it's a hard kind of nut to crack. And so anything that makes your world smaller and more manageable and like helps you sleep at night, which is like, I did the hundred calls, I did the you know, 100 emails that can actually, you know, help you get out of your head of like, hey, I need to solve this big problem and just make your world more like bite sized and manageable. And I think it can also be helpful of like dream state is like every person on the team knows what their magic number is. So like maybe it takes me 100 calls to convert to five ops, but maybe it takes you 50. Right. And so like allowing people to know their own would be a dream state but you also need more mature reps to be able to do that and also i do i'm not going to go down the whole like work from home route but like i do i do think it is hard right now for people in their first sales role to understand how to get into these accounts without things like activity metrics like that's the only thing they're like i don't know how to get into you know ibm but like maybe if i call them 100 times i'll get in sort of thing. right well, and I think, too, to your point of, like, what is, like, Karina's magic number, You, I would have taken away from this episode, oh, this is how I can start to talk to my manager. Like, hey, and put it back on my manager. Like, what is good looking like for me compared to your other reps, right? And how can I maybe replicate that? So I think there's so much on, and, and, I, and I hear it all the time, like, managers are like, I hate, I hate working remotely. Like, I want to be in the office with them. And, um, but it takes a high, you know, intentionality and emotional intelligence, I think, to understand that it's not just the remote aspect. No. Yeah. It's yeah. how it's how you're communicating. It's what you're I'm trying to uncover and unpack and and everything you said too. Yeah. I agree with you hundred percent. Okay. So I have two final questions for you, Kelly. By the way, I've been this has been amazing. Actually I have three, but we're gonna save that one for a little at the end. Is there anything because going off on your own is hard. And I think a lot of people, at least the people in my tech space universe that have been, 
just unhappy at their jobs, unable to hit their numbers no matter what, you know, they go off and they create their own thing. But that's hard and really scary to do. And it must have been for you too. So I want to know what was that positive moment for you that like you hang on to anytime it gets like hard and scary again, like what's that moment where you go back to where you're like, oh, that's why I'm doing Canda Group. You know, I'm going to give you a hippie answer. So I don't know if that's for uh, all the the listeners out there. But for me, there is just a natural kind of state of like contentment and happiness and fulfillment that is actually quite lower vibrations than the like high vibrations I was feeling when I was in a company full time, just like high anxiety in my head, like very and for me, it's like actually a little bit slower and it's like more like still and peaceful and contentful and fulfilling. You know, I think working for yourself is really hard. You know, I miss paychecks every two weeks and like healthcare. Like, I mean, I have those. Don't worry, everybody. But, you know, you have to pay for it yourself. <laughs> and it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, just like things like, you know, I'm learning about accounting and I'm learning about all this other stuff. Right. So it is hard. but. I also am like fulfilled and get to, I get to choose like, you know, Anna and I were both like, hey, we love working with managers and we feel very passionately about that. Like, let's launch this, you know, manager mastermind group this summer. And that's something that I can do without being like, hey, let me look at my KPIs. Let me look at that sort of thing. So I think it takes a lot of courage to go out on your own. I think you need a really like robust support network around you. And also, I think you have to like, you're going to grieve, right? There's a lot of things that you have to walk away from when you're working on your own and just take time to like grieve that and also be excited about building your own thing. So that's my hippie answer for you. I love it. It's beautiful. It's there's a, like the valley of grief. And once once you go through that, you get to the, the I, I don't know, what is it? The, whatever the trope is to where you found your true happiness. But you hit you hit me with the vibrations because I'm very much a, I'm very much about like, what am I feeling in my body? And the, the fact that you said that you feel like calmer, that's so good for your nervous system. That effect that goes straight to your brain. So you are you are actually living your best life in this moment. I hope so. I hope so, too. OK. All right. So. We have one question, one final question that we ask all of our guests. You ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. If you were to describe sales in one word, what one word would that be? Chess. Ooh, I love it. (laughs) You want me to explain it? Yes, of course. Please tell me more. I don't know if... um, Yeah, I would say that, you know, people think about sales a lot as just like, you know, checkers where it's like one move close, one move close. But it's actually like this beautiful game of chess where it's like what you're doing right now, you're doing to set yourself up from for three moves from now. Uh, And it's not these quick takedowns. It's more like long, strategic, intentional movement. Yes, I love it. That's I view it very similarly. Negotiations are just like that, too. Right. Like, yeah, I'll which is all wrapped up in sales. All right, now this is the silly question. So Kelly and I were, were chatting before. We realized we both live in Atlanta, so we sh- totally should have gotten together in person for this. But she actually described 
or, or mentioned pickleball to me. And this is a new thing that I'm hearing about. I am not as hip as you, clearly. Can you explain for our listeners what is pickleball and why are people so obsessed with it? Okay. One, <laughs> I think you're the only person that would describe pickleball as hip. Like most people are concerned about my well-being because it's like known as like quite popular with the 65 plus year old crowd. Oh, oh God. Okay. It, okay. I do. I do exclusively have geriatric hobbies. I'm like, I love to garden. I love to play pickleball, you know, but pickleball, apparently the fastest growing sport in the U.S. Yes. Apparently, I'm also uh, trying to get everybody involved with pickleball, but it is so fun and everybody should go play it. And the reason why is I think the reason why it's so popular is it's really easy to get started and to get pretty good pretty fast. Ah. It's a combination of like what feels like, and you kind of set me up, feels like a combination of ping pong, tennis, and chess. Not to play. Yes, because they're making these like really, people think it's just like slamming the ball, but it's like you want to make these little shots so that Mm. three shots from now, it like sets your partner up for a good shot. Anyway. Got it. It's a great time, very popular with the uh, retired crowd and myself, <laughs> and, and you should come play with me. I think you should maybe incorporate that into your training in June. Yeah, or we could just turn this podcast into a pickleball podcast. Have you thought about that? <laughs> no, we're not doing that. <laughs> you well, think about can- it. I'll, I'll think. I'll think on it. I'll think on it. I'll think on it. A hundred dials later, yeah. I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let me know. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for joining Reveal. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you and to meet you. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I know our listeners are going to love it. Thank you, Corinna. I love talking with you. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 